Welcome to The Jangle. I am Chad Black, professor of Latin American history at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. For this second episode of our second season, I'm happy to share with you a conversation with Professor Shellen Wu. Dr. Wu researches, writes, and teaches modern Chinese history in the department and is the author of Empires of Coal, Fueling China's Entry into the Modern World Order, 1860 to 1990, from Stanford University Press. In addition to modern China, Dr. Wu's interests range widely through the history of science, global Chinese history, and the history and experience of Asian American and Pacific Islanders in the United States, a topic she will be teaching in the spring. Welcome, Professor Shellen Wu, to The Jangle. Thanks. I'm happy to have you here. Um, as with uh, all of our conversations here, I'm going to start off with my standard question, right? And that is, like, how did you end up becoming a professional historian? So in college, I majored in history and literature. And I quickly discovered that I was much better on the history side than the literature analysis. And part of the exercise that helped me convince that was I went and I did a project looking at newspapers. So I was looking at microfilm at the time. So you go to a machine, you load up these rolls of film and you go through it. And I was trying to reconstruct the events around Kristallnacht. Um, so looking at the German newspaper, the Volkische Beobachter, uh, which is this German, you know, so it's on the more conservative side. And, um, and I thought that was really interesting to go through this primary source and to reconstruct this event. And I quickly realized that I was really interested in constructing these narratives from all of these sources. So you have like this archival impulse. Yeah, and I was also really interested in the way that you see these unexpected connections. So another thing that I became interested in was the way that the last port open to Jewish refugees in the world was Shanghai. And um, so that was actually, I thought that was really interesting that there were all these Jewish refugees in Shanghai during World War II. Uh, I did not even know that. That's interesting. <laughs> did, was, was this like for a course on German history? Were you initially attracted to uh, German history in particular? Yeah, I was really fascinated um, by um, the war and also by the the way that um, the the way that German history shaped up in the twentieth century. So that uh, seems like a um, in some ways like a common story, right? A lot of undergrads are interested in uh, the history of war and history of World War Two. Yeah, but uh, yeah. it can lead to very different things? Yeah, well, I mean, it certainly is. Um, I, I think that a lot of people get drawn to these deeply affecting accounts from the war, whether it is people's personal diaries or all of these documents and collections related to the wartime experiences that both civilians and also soldiers experience. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting, especially now, the, the way that... Uh... World War II, it, 
um, is like initially experienced by um, people in the United States as as a as seemingly a pretty clear story of like who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and uh, you know, getting beyond that and seeing like uh, all the complications of the multiple fronts, the war, and what you know how different those experiences work can be pretty profound experience. Yeah, but also the way that you have all of these global connections that transcend borders. Um, I did not realize this until much later on, but my grandmother lived across the street from a synagogue um, and that later in Shanghai and that later turned into the Department of Education offices. In the 90s, Bill Clinton visited um, and then after the country reopened to outsiders, um, for years, you know, some, sometimes people would show up in the apartment building and say that uh, before 49, they had relatives who lived there um, before 1949. Oh, that's really cool. Was this um, experience uh, part of your decision to... Um, go to graduate school? Did you go to graduate school immediately after undergrad or did you um, do something else in between? I took a year off and I was working in a nonprofit. Um, and I just, in the end, I think that it really, it was really fascinating for me to pursue this, you know, if you think about uh, what we do in our jobs, we do a lot of reading um, and uh, a lot of this um, travel to archives. And, all, and, and it's amazing to think that you could actually be paid to do that. Sure. I, I frequently, what do you think? I frequently counsel students that they should take um, some time off from school and, and uh, see if that burning desire to, you know, find a career path to reading and, and working in archives is still there. Do you? Do yeah, you I think that is actually a really good thing to actually work a little and see if you really want to do it. But also people figure out their career path uh, at different points in time. And sometimes people get it to graduate school before they actually realize that this is not for them. Some of my cohort in grad school, for example, realized actually when they went to the archive that they didn't like that. Um, there is, this is not a romanticized view of being a historian because you spend a lot of time alone and going to archives, if you don't like that kind of thing, if you don't like being hunched over old documents all day long, that's terrible a thing to do. So, or that people realize that they really don't like teaching, they really don't like uh, various aspects that are uh, important parts of the job, and it's not for them. And it's, you know, perfectly fine to then cut your losses and move on to something else that you're better suited for. Sure. So, as an undergrad and, and discovering that connection between um, the uh, Jewish diaspora around World War II and, and Shanghai as a port city. Was that like the first, would you say, did you experience that kind of like one of those first like archival aha moments that we all kind of chase like a drug? 
Um, yeah, you know, I was interested in the way that, and this is actually how I have started new projects. You read these books and a certain detail just jumps out and it opens up all kinds of questions and you realize that there is perhaps a project there that you can chase down these details and solve some of these questions. You never have these complete answers. There's no perfect archive. There's no, um, you know, things happen. Bombs drop on cities and things decay and we're not saved. Or in the case of women and minorities, their papers and their recollections are never seen as worthy enough to be saved. So, you, you know, you ask these questions and then you kind of figure out if um, there is a way to answer them. And I think that uh, this is also, I've been long been interested in these murder mysteries, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes. And I think there is that uh, this, there are certain parallels that you want to solve this mystery. Um, and you go about tracking down these sources, you go about tracking down these potential answers or ways to answer what may not have, is not immediately obvious. Um, and then like they build on each other, right? So like this initial experience around um, Shanghai as a port city in World War II, you ultimately for your dissertation research look at um, coal, natural resources, the connections between Germany and China and the context of imperialism and how it uh, transformed um, Chinese approaches to natural resources and modernity and all the, of these sorts of things. So um, what kind of archival experiences did you have with that project? So I spent about maybe five, six months uh, in Berlin and I did a Fulbright year in China. Um, and these are two very different archival experiences because in Germany, the issue really is that you really have the, to have the stamina to go through. The archives are open for many hours uh, of the day and you just go through um, as much as you can. Whereas in China, it's, uh, it's often the access is an issue. Um, there are often these archives are closed for several hours during the middle of the day for a lunch break. Um, you need to have an affiliation with a Chinese organization to get uh, um, any sort of access in the first place. Um, so it, it these are very different types of experiences. Um, and then you kind of pick up along the way these, um, the, these hacks about how to do these kinds of research, um, you know, whether it is about, you know, that some of these archives allow photographing, then you, you can spend a lot less time. You so say all my time, for example, uh, for my new project at the Rockefeller Foundation Archives in upstate New York, um, you just go in and you like stand uh, for eight hours and photographs as much as you can, and then you can read them later. Whereas when that is not available, uh, and that's the case in Chinese archives, you really have to do it right there, then and there. Mm 
Yeah, and those those different contexts breed, um, I think, kind of like you say, like different kinds of anxieties around around your sources and and uh, you know, did I read? Did I find? Did I read? Did I get all of the right things that I that I need? Yeah. So it's it is. Um, you try to get as much as you can because. Um, you know, who knows whether there is a later. I mean, I, I think that the pandemic also um, uh, certainly is, a, is going to be this classic example of why you shouldn't push off to do these visits when you uh, when it, it's possible to do it now. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. Unfortunately, because of some of my own experiences <laughs> of things that I wish I had done before everything shut down. You mentioned your, your new project and um, this is in some ways uh, an extension or is it a new set of questions for you? There are definitely connections, um, but I am looking more primarily at agricultural science and uh, geography, but it also deals with these global connections. And so particularly on our cultural sciences, like land tenure policies or um, or like the application of technology or all of the above kind of thing? Um, so uh, I look at these uh, a number of figures who um, agricultural scientists and engineers are widely traveled. Um, and this is something that I realized also in my first book is that um, you know, people don't often pay too much attention to these engineers, but at that level of expertise, these are people who really traveled the world um, because their skills enabled them to be employed in multiple places. And this is true also for agricultural science. Um, and so, People like John Losing Buck, for example, who did the first agricultural survey in China in the 1930s, um, but also uh, come out of the Cornell program in agricultural science and agronomy. Um, and these are people who, so John Losing Buck is, was married to uh, Pearl Buck. Um, and this is, a, this is a period when you have a lot of these American missionaries who worked abroad. Um, so part of their, their job is to be missionaries, but the other thing is that they also had their hand in a lot of other projects, including in agronomy and these, these agricultural um, projects. Kind of um, like development missionaries in a sense. Too. Yeah, exactly. I think in the post-war period, they, they would be you know, more closely connected to development projects, um, but this started earlier than that. That's interesting. So when you're looking at, uh, I, one of the things I, I, I love about history is um, its flexibility methodologically. You know, it, it's possible mm -hmm. to be methodologically promiscuous, if you will, when um, trying to understand uh, complex historical questions, um, given the scope of the kinds of of things that you're interested in, both geographical, you know, sort of this, the spatial temporal um, expanse. Have you found yourself being attracted to like new uh, methodologies that sort of go past what 
what we learn in introductory seminars? Well, for the last couple of years, I have been involved with the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. They funded a project that looks at local gazetteers and, uh, in China. So this is a database about maybe 4,400 uh, gazetteers uh, that covered um, you know, the past thousand years, but gazetteers continue to be made um, into the 20th and the 21st century. And they're essentially these locally sponsored encyclopedias. They often contain information about the kind of crops that is grown, the products in this region, they often contain maps. So the part of the project that I've been doing with this group is the searching of images in these gazetteers. And it turns out that the images in these gazetteers fall into several major categories. One is the administrative map, um, but then also images the, of, um, they often have these um, uh, star maps, um, again, related to the kind of administrative that where it is locally. Um, and in some instances, uh, these, these images of rituals and also of uh, animals. So there's a broad range, but the most, most of them are maps. Um, so it's been very interesting to work also on the digital humanities side with these questions about how do you go about searching for images in and along with texts. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely open to these new innovations and methodologies for doing research. Um, and um, so it, it, it's, it's, you do realize that we have a different set of tools depending on the time period that you work on. So some of the modern China people um, have been uh, not only doing oral interviews, but also one of the one of the trends uh, that probably has peaked by now is uh, the collection of flea markets, uh, what uh, was has been called the garbology. So picking through things that have been sold off as waste paper to find documents. Uh, so one of the reasons why I think that has peaked is because now people have uh, have gotten wise to the thing that the, these waste paper could be also valuable. Sure. Uh, so you no longer have as many good finds in flea markets anymore. Um, so I, there are all kinds of ways that people think about, you know, if the archives are closed, what are the, some of the, the these other ways to do research? So did the... Uh image searching allow you to, if you will, see different patterns or, or was yeah, it Yeah, like so you know, they actually have the, Max Planck has the money to hire computer scientists. And so they actually have been doing amazing things. And it is now wise, uh, widely, uh, it's not open to the public to search. So one of the things is that it could actually pull these images from these gazetteers. I am working with um, several of the other historians who are doing this uh, to put together kind of an introductory essays on, uh, on using this tool, Logart, for short for local gazetteers, 
Um, and this is, um, so we're trying to put this together for an issue for the history of science journal ISIS. Um, kind of looking at the various ways that you can use this tool uh, for digital visual searching. Well, that's cool. You obviously have this willingness to take on new subjects and new places, um, which you know obviously carries with it its own its own set of anxieties around learning new literatures, learning new methodologies, learning new approaches. Um, does that enthusiasm um, it, like inform your teaching decisions too? Yeah, so it, um, I think the, the great thing about teaching uh, courses is that, and also on new topics is that with each course that you put together and the kind of reading list that you pull together, um, this is also an entire learning process for me as well to take on these subjects and to see what the literature is. Um, so that's why I'm actually enormously excited about my Asian American history course in this spring, because it's been wonderful to go through the literature on this and to see all of the exciting works that are have come out and are coming out. So this is Asian American history was a new field in the 1970s. And since then, there has just been a really um, a wonderful array of literature on the topic. So this new class, um, what uh, what's your your sort of focus, or what are you, um, you know, how are you situating uh, Asian Amer the Asian American experience in in the broader you know U.S. history? Even in the nineteen nineties, American historians. Um, when they looked at uh, American history or Western or the American West, uh, they're thinking predominantly of Irish, Italian immigrants. Um, and when they think of this American uh, experience, uh, that is, that's the lens that they're looking at it through. And um, so from these early pioneers in Asian American studies, you have people now really pointing out that Asian American history is such a rich field because it includes not only those workers, uh, Chinese workers who contributed to the constructing, construction of the transcontinental railroad, but also uh, includes the history of Hawaii, which was its own kingdom before the US colonized and incorporated Hawaii into uh, the US. Um, incidentally, Hawaii still, you know, people still make the mistake that somehow it's not part of the US, uh, even though it is one of the states. Um, and this, um, so it is this incredibly rich history um, that also has continued resonance now because Asian American is the uh, largest and uh, fastest growing group in the U.S. It's, uh, there's been some similar trends happening, and particularly in the historiography in Mexico, but uh, also in Peru. People have, uh, and in Cuba as well, actually, where people have been repositioning and rethinking through um, the process by which immigrant uh, Chinese and Japanese labor 
impacted the development, you know, the late 19th and early 20th century development of those places. So, yeah, I think it's like a productive, a very productive and interesting part of the growing literature across the Americas. Yeah, and it's, it is also uh, something that is deeply connected to um, Asian history. I think there has been um, some of these historians who are now looking at these trans-Pacific ties. Certainly within Chinese history, which I specialize in, you see that some of the first efforts at international diplomacy in the Qing dynasty in the late 19th century was to address concerns about abuses of Chinese workers uh, in the Spanish empire, um, that they were forced to work in these slave-like conditions, these coolies uh, labor, uh, so to negotiate these, con these conditions for these Chinese workers. And someone who is seen as the, one of the founding fathers of the Chinese nation, Sun Yat-sen, he was, part of his education was in Hawaii and he spent more time overseas uh, than actually growing up in the US. Um, his brother worked in, in Hawaii. He attended high school, part of high school. And you can see that sort of trans-Pacific influence in also how he viewed the Chinese constitution and which borrowed also at the time from the American, uh, part, uh, the American Congre congressional organization. That's interesting. It's, it seems at times like uh, during periods of intensified exploitation or, or social violence, we also get this like simultaneous uh, commodification and interest to the pastiche kind of consumption of Chinese or Asian culture as exotic. You, you know what I mean? So like, uh, you know, while uh, this, this happens in a lot of ways with uh, Mexican culture in relationship to the United States as well. You know, while uh, the labor, the immigrant labor itself is is both like required, necessary, but also uh, excoriated publicly in populist ways. You you know you simultaneously end up with the with the consumption of of cultural artifacts as being like a uh, almost almost like a, a marker of of bourgeois uh, success. And some of these uh, issues that continue to be raised about immigrants in the US today. Uh, these were already raised in the 19th century and particularly towards Chinese workers and towards Asian immigrants because at the time it was viewed that um, no non-white person could actually become a naturalized citizen. So some of the legal cases in the 19th century is also regarding these Chinese workers. And yeah, and I think particularly in Tennessee, as opposed to living maybe on the West Coast, um, it's easier for students to ignore the fact that Asian American experiences are also constitutive of what it means to be American in the broader sense. And I think that um, in Tennessee, as well as Georgia and across the South, there are um, significant and growing populations of Asians. Right. 
Well, I think this class sounds fascinating and I'm hoping that, you know, you get the full class, even if teaching full classes still feels a little bit, uh, a little bit weird in the day, in the days of, of the declining pl- uh, pandemic. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. But this was certainly one of the motivations for the course because uh, especially last year, a lot of these issues came up that especially our AAPI students were experiencing increasing uh, numbers of incidents, anti-Asian incidents, and that um, that they continue to be this really underserved part of our campus. Well, um, especially with that context and the uh, well-documented rise in anti-Asian sentiment and violence in the United States, it seems more important than ever to have it uh, in our course offerings. Yeah, so I'm really excited actually about teaching and I'm looking forward to well, uh, I would encourage all of our undergrads to uh, sign up for that class as quickly as you can. And I'd like to thank you, Shellen, for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Chad. <laughs>